Hi, my name is Anurag. I'll be talking about Aurora today. I manage a, a handful of our data processing services here at Amazon. So our basic agenda here is to cover a, the, an overview of our performance and availability features and then get into our new enhancements over November through roughly Q1 um, that we can look forward to. Um, I'll warn you guys that this will be a somewhat deep talk and there's actually a lot of material, so I'll be going fast. I hope that's okay. So uh, let's just start with the basics. What's Aurora? So it's an open source compatible relational database. We just announced PostgreSQL uh, compatibility today. Uh, we previously are, uh, continue to be MySQL compatible. And it, uh, per, our goal is to provide the performance and availability of a commercial database uh, you, you know, combined with the simplicity and cost effectiveness is open, of open source. Let's uh, jump to the basics of performance. And so we try really hard to scale with instance size. And so, you know, you've heard us talk in the past about how we're 5x faster on large instances. And you can compare, you know, on small instances, you know, MySQL is a great database. And, but it doesn't really scale due to various uh, sorts of contention as uh, on either reads or writes. And that's been true for 5.6 and for 5.7 in our experience. And, you know, that's just not me. You know, and benchmarks don't really mean anything. Uh, here's a real-life data workload from a gaming customer who switched over from a, from MySQL on RDS to over to uh, Aurora and on a 4XL, it's about 3X faster in their experience. And you can just see that time frame where that cutover happened from 15 milliseconds on average to about five. So let's talk about how we achieve this. And uh, I mean, it's really pretty simple. We do less work on a per uh, operation basis. And our view is, is that databases are primarily about IO. Uh, once you go to network-attached storage, that's all about packets per second. And if you're doing high-throughput processing on the head node, uh, that's all about the context switches you do and the accesses you do to uh, the Linux kernel. So let's drill in a little bit on IO. And this, this initial part is a bit of a repeat of a talk I did last year. So if you look at uh, MySQL with a replica, um, you're running multi-AZ in, R, in uh, RDS. So you're going to do a write of logs, bin logs, uh, the data blocks. You have a double write buffer because to avoid torn writes. You have FRM files which store the metadata. And those all, when they modify, go out to a primary copy in EBS, which mirrors. And then you go and duplicate that over to across to multi-AZ, write that again to uh, EBS volume, which mirrors, and come back up. So the interesting point here is, is that steps one, three, and four are sequential and they're synchronous. And that, the fact that they're sequential and synchronous amplifies, excuse me, amplifies both latency and jitter. And there are lots of different types of writes for each user operation. And looking at a 30-minute suspension write-only workload, we are able to see that it's doing about three-quarters of a million transactions and with an average of 7.4 IOs per transaction. So let's compare that to Aurora. So on Aurora, we're writing to six copies of data 
two in each of three AZs, the only thing we write are redo records. And all of the steps in the write are asynchronous. So we don't write data blocks, we don't write checkpoints, we don't do cache replacements. Since we're writing six copies, that's six times more log records, right? But since it, log records are much smaller than data pages and all the rest of the stuff we talked about, it's nine times less network traffic, even after the amplification. And since we're writing asynchronously and in parallel to all of them, and we only require a quorum of four out of six to come back in order to consider something durable, we're much more tolerant of network and storage outlier latency. And that's really important when you're running multi-tenant storage. And so in this case, you can see that we're on that same workload, we're doing 35 times more work in the same unit time. And that's primarily because we're doing 7.7 .7 times less IOs. That's despite the 6x amplification. So where did those all, all that work go? So it went to the storage node. So here's the a picture of what's happening at the, underneath the covers in the storage node. So basically you ship a log record, it comes into a queue, we write it, we act it back. Okay, so that's the portion of the step that is going to be in the foreground latency path. And now all of these steps are going to be asynchronous. So past that, we need to go and sort and group these things because it came in asynchronously over the network. And then it joins a sort of synchronous, uh, clean hot log. Now we might have gaps in there, so we gossip with the other storage nodes and uh, do uh, peers to fill in any of the holes that may exist. Every so often we need to coalesce a, you know, a redo record into a data page. We back all of those up into S3, both the redo records as well as the data pages on a continual basis. And then you know, as, since we're writing out of place, we eventually have to garbage collect old versions. We eventually have to, we also just scrub the blocks on a continual basis for uh, cyclic redundancy checks and just to make sure because you know, every disk is gonna have a potential of disk rot, right? Um, so all this, you know, the key points here is that the steps are asynchronous and on an input queue basis, we're doing 46 times less work than uh, MySQL in terms of how many writes we're, we're seeing here. Uh, this is unamplified and this is per node, so that is basically the divisor of the 6x that we had in the prior step. And we favor latency-sensitive operations. So we, you know, somebody comes in and they get out. And then all the rest of it, we're using the disk space that's available to buffer against spikes. So you know, if there's a, a lot of work going on, well, maybe I'll take a little bit more time to do scrubbing or coalescing or what have you and just sit with larger amount of usage in the interim. Let's look at how that then expands to replication. So if you're familiar with MySQL bin log replication, if you've got 70% uh, writes on the master node, you've got 70% writes minimum on your replicates. It ends up often being more than that because it's a single-threaded bin log apply. And a bin log is basically pushing logical SQL statements across the, the channel. And uh, the storage is separated. And what that can result in is latency drift, right? Because it's hard for the replica to keep up with the activity against multi-threaded work going on in the master node, particularly at scale. So what we do is, is that the, our rep, you know, we also support bin log replication, of course. Um, but in our case, we attach to the same multi-AZ storage, the six copies across three AZs. And all we send over the channel is the same redo records. 
And so what happens is that if I don't have something in my buffer cache, I can just throw that record away. If I do have something in my buffer cache, then I update it. And then every so often we advance, you know, once we've seen all of the uh, redo records, we advance, you know, the point of consistency. Why do we care? We care because the replica lag gets a lot shorter. So this is GoGuardian who said that, you know, when they were running their systems on MySQL, they saw replica lag go up to 12 minutes. Now that 12 minutes is a long time. It's hard for an application to deal with something that's going between milliseconds and 12 minutes, right? That's multiple orders of magnitude. Uh, the maximum replica lag that they saw across four replicas never exceeded 20. On, on this particular snapshot, you can see it averaged about 15. We also uh, have a different model around committing data. And uh, the key thing here is, is that in MySQL, it's writing blocks to disk, right? It's doing an, uh, an IO to the um, operation into the Linux kernel. And so it's using the traditional way of doing uh, writes because you have to, you know, commits, uh, you have to support ACID, you have to make sure no one can see something, you have to make sure that by the time you ever show somebody data, it's made, been made durable on disk, right? And so what you basically do is, is that you buffer something out to disk and then you uh, have to wait for it to come back before you can write. And that, what that means is, is that since you have to do that, you have to end up group, if you're running at, uh, high load, you have to group these lot writes together. So you do a group commit, so to speak. And so when things aren't go going so fast, the writes go, you end up with a write penalty, right? Because you can't fill the thing and you have to sort of, you're waiting to find out if you can finish that write because you don't know if anybody else is gonna come in or not. So that's a basic problem with group commits in really every database I'm aware of, um, other than Aurora, where we're not doing disk IO. We're doing network IO. And so since we're doing a network operation, we request the network operation with the first write, and we keep filling that buffer until it's uh, you know, ready to go. So whenever the network operation takes off, then we basically lock it down and send it. So there isn't that latency penalty to try to fill that buffer. And we consider the write durable when four of the six nodes that we wrote to acknowledge it, and we consider the database durable to that point in time where we filled in all of the commits or writes up to a particular uh, log sequence number, right? So it's all happening asynchronously. Adaptive thread pooling, so if you're familiar with MySQL, there's a thread per connection in standard MySQL. In MySQL EE, you can define thread groups and say like these connections go to this thread group and you, if you tune it very carefully, you can um, figure out what the stall threshold is before it goes to another thread group. It's, it's pretty complicated. Um, and in the standard MySQL, you, you basically can't run lots of connections. In our case, we're running ePoll. We have a task queue behind the scenes. We have a bunch of worker threads behind that. And um, we can dynamically size that thread pool. And you know we can easily handle 5,000 concurrent client connections on a single R38XL which matters because that re reduces your need to do you know, other systems or shard or have uh, memcache sitting in front, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Okay, so that all I've covered in the past. Here's a new slide that uh, talks about something else that's pretty important. So once I'm pushing 5,000 concurrent connections into the system, you're gonna create a lot of backlog in, you know, into the rest of the system. So let's talk about lock management. So MySQL has a single lock uh, that protects entry into the lock table. 
and so one person can come in and go out at a time. In our case, we allow concurrent access to any given blockchain, and we basically generate a hash map across a multitude of hash blockchains. So people who are scanning, you can support multiple of them. Somebody who's updating a particular blockchain, you can support one. But a lot more progress can happen. And that you just basically need to do that if you want to do high throughput. Okay, so that's all stuff that's been around really since launch, uh, so that around 18 months. Let's talk about what's new. So this is going to be November, December, and in, I'll tell you when something is in Q1. So we've improved cached read performance. So these are other things where the you unlocks know, exist, and you know we started to get hotspots of the metadata catalog. We've been produced uh, data dish, dictionary synchronization and cache eviction. Um, we've added a NUMA-aware scheduler that really only matters once you're running multiple sockets, but it matters a lot once you're multi running multiple sockets. And we now use a read view algorithm that is concurrent and latch-free. And what the read view is, is it basically determines for a given SQL statement what you're allowed to see. Um, and that was worth about a 25% uh, throughput gain on a, um, again, these are our three eight Excel numbers. Um, it, but it is cached performance, right? Let's compare that to uncached. So there, once it's uncached, you're dealing a lot with IOs, right? And so we've done, added a smart scheduler to basically figure out whether a workload is CPU heavy or IO heavy, because we have a lot of threads that sort of face the front door to deal with requests coming in, and a lot of requests that face the back door to talk with the storage system. And so depending on how much workload is coming in, we might want to reallocate threads towards one or the other. We've also added uh, a selector to figure out which read node, which uh, storage node we should go to amongst those six copies. Um, and remember, this is on a 10 gigabyte segment of the, your overall database. So you know, your, own, your overall database may be spread across hundreds of uh, storage nodes. But any given block is going to exist on six. And across those, you know, it's, it's multi-tenant. Other people may be active on that. You know, there are obviously some are local inside your current AZ, some are remote. And so we're just basically figuring out through sampling which one should I go to to get, get the best performance. Logical read-ahead, that's an interesting feature. So when you're doing database, when you're doing IOs, uh, MySQL basically takes advantage of the Linux kernel read-ahead. So if you're reading in sequence, you know, block 100, 101, 102, it's going to prefetch 103, 104, 105, right? Makes sense. Um, but this is a B tree. So there's not very much, there's not reason to believe that uh, just because things are sequential in key order that they're going to be sequential in physical block address order, right? It'll work great for a benchmark, but over time it'll degrade, right? Because, you know, you do splits and all the rest of it. So logical read-ahead is basically us saying, well, if we can detect that uh, the same operation is happening just as Linux does, we're going to prefetch those blocks in, but it doesn't have to be in address, you know, block address order. It could be arbitrary, right? It's going to be in the order that it appears in the B tree. And, you know, that's worth about, been worth about 10% throughput gain for us. And um, that's a pretty big deal on the uh, IO-centric uh, environment. Hot row contention. So I talked about uh, how the, we've removed the lock on the lock manager. And that works great right up to the point when you have a really contended individual lock, 
or individual row. Because what happens there is that you get, end up with one super long blockchain, right? And that, that was actually an area where uh, for about a year we were slower than MySQL, you know, shame on me. And so what we've uh, done is, is that in 1.9, which is November, we just released it, uh, I think, a week or two ago. We compressed those locks so that rather than keeping an entry per uh, thread per block, we actually just flip it around and keep a bitmap for the lock and say, like, of all the threads, which ones are waiting for this? Okay, makes sense? And then now we're in 1.9, we're also replacing spin locks with a blocking futex, which for really heavy uh, write workload ends up in like in a 12x reduction in CPU and a 3x improvement in throughput. In the uh, next release in December, we'll be uh, using, adding a new technique to uh, use dynamic programming to release blocks and figure out who to give it to, which basically takes it from uh, order n squared to order n. And on a Percona TPC-C-like benchmark, uh, we improved 29 times from uh, 1.4K uh, 1 uh, transactions per minute to 42K. So are you going to see, uh, you know, 35 times or 29 times improvement? No, of course not, right? Uh, so here's some things that represent uh, the difference across a variety of different improvements. And now I'm not comparing old Aurora to new Aurora. I'm comparing Aurora to MySQL. So at 500 connections on a 10 gigabyte database, you see about a 3x improvement with 5,000, so a lot more contention going on. You see a 16x improvement. Now, if you grow a little bit larger, we get, uh, that's going to intrinsically create less contention. And so, you know, the improvements uh, start to change a little bit. So it'll be all over the map. Your workloads will be different. But it was an important improvement for us. I'm just going to keep throwing stuff at you. Uh, batch insert performance. Uh, so in batch inserts, the way MySQL works is that you uh, insert through the top of the B tree and you know, it walks a cursor position and you end up having to um, get latches again and again and again and again. And um, what we do now is, is that if we can figure out that you're accessing the same block you did before or the block just to the left of it or just to the right of it, we're not going to traverse the B tree down. We're going to remember your prior position and go left or right. Faster index builds. So we talked about how uh, MySQL leverages Linux read-ahead, and you know this requires consecutive block addresses. And it also inserts the entries top-down, which creates splits and, in my opinion, excessive logging. Uh, so we talked about how our scan uh, prefetches blocks based on the position in the tree. But also, we build bottom-up. We construct all of the leaf blocks, and then we build the black branch blocks. And so what that means is there aren't any B-tree splits. You touch each page only once, and there's only one log record. And you can see that that's yielding about a 2 to 4x improvement for index builds. So people have been, one of the features people have been asking for most out of, uh, from us beyond uh, you know, PostgreSQL support, which uh, is, we'll talk about that later, is um, spatial indexing. Right? So there are a lot of reasons you want spatial indexing. You, know, you want to store and reason about spatial data, find all the people who are near a hospital. Um, it's multidimensional data, so it's not as easy to use a B-tree. 
Uh, you want to support both points and polygons, and you know, there, there's a set of operations there. So there are really two possible approaches that you can use here. Uh, pretty much everyone in the industry uses R trees, and which are basically you create a bounding box around a set of points, and uh, you basically have to keep it balanced. The problem with R trees is that they're super hard to insert into because you can't really control where the split happens and where you need to do uh, changes, and it's, it generally degenerates over time for that as well. Um, so we use a space filling curve. So what a space filling curve is is that you basically define a mathematical structure that uh, guarantees that uh, formulaically it, can it will address every possible point in the space. And it's dimensionally ordered, which means that across your x-axis, uh, a value to the right is going to be, you know, a value uh, that's larger on x is going to appear later in the b-tree than a value uh, that's smaller, and then similarly on the y-axis. And so z-index is one form of a space-filling curve, you know, Hilbert curves, piano curves, there are lots of curves. Um, the neat thing about using this technique is, is that you get to use a regular b-tree, right? Because you've, what you've done is you've linearized the space. And uh, B-trees are fast. We've been working on them for 40 years. Uh, you know, you get to use all of the technology that people already have. And, uh, you know, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which should know something about spatial indexing, we released uh, GeoWave a while ago inside Apache Accumulo, and it uses either Hilbert curves or Z-indexing as, uh, you know, its technology. So... And it turns out they know a thing or two about spatial because uh, if you look at the uh, performance difference between MySQL 5.7, which supports spatial indexing, and RZ indexing, I mean, that's absurd, the difference there, right? It's like two orders of magnitude. So let's get past that. So that's the basic availability things that are happening in through the end of the year, give or take. Um, Sorry, the very performance things. Availability, I mean, we can talk a lot about performance. It doesn't matter at all if your database isn't up. So here, again, uh, a little bit retread over the things that are most important about availability. So availability starts with durability, right? If you aren't, you're not durable, you're certainly not available, and it takes a long time to rebuild. So here's the basics of the underlying storage system inside Aurora. So the storage volume automatically grows. You're not going to get an outage because you run out of space on some statically added thing. And that's good for both cost and for space management because, uh, you know, you, you start small and the system grows underneath you to the need, to this amount you need. We talked about how we use quorum systems to uh, read and to write, and that uh, tolerates latency outliers. We talked about how you use a peer-to-peer -peer gossip replication to make sure that you can deal with outliers. We continuously back up to S3, which, as you know, is designed for 11.9s of durability. And then we're also always monitoring the nodes and the disks to repair them. Now, repair, uh, one of the things we do to facilitate repair is that the chunks uh, of your volume are split into 10 gigabyte segments. And so, you know, you can do the math on a 10 giggy network, how long it takes to replicate a 10 uh, gigabyte segment around. And so I basically am durable unless I lose three copies in that amount of time. And, you know, that's an unlikely event, right? Let's put it that way. Um, 
And then as we change quorums, basically to say, like, I added a new node for this because some other node went bad, that doesn't stall writes either. So that's all I'll say about that one. Um, we talked a little bit about replicas before, but here's the replicas from an availability perspective. You can have a primary node in an Aurora cluster and up to 15 replicas. Uh, we automatically, or we're always monitoring uh, the database nodes. We'll detect and uh, replace them. We are always monitoring your database processes. We will um, recycle them and shut them down and restart them. You can scale out your read traffic. We recently announced uh, a little while ago a reader endpoint. So you can go to a single endpoint and it'll load balance across your replicas. And if you have replicas, we'll automatically promote them to be a uh, write mastering node if uh, you know, your write master node goes down. Continuous backup. So each storage node is always writing to S3, all the changes it sees. And then as we get to, from uh, the perspective of saying like, okay, everything is caught up, we know we're at this point, we register that this is a, the new recovery point and it's consistent across this widely distributed storage system. At uh, restore time, we basically retrieve those things, we, all of those different segment snapshots and restore them back to our storage nodes and apply the log streams. Now, so that's all, you know, the main interesting thing here is, is that you don't have this like point in the day where things get slower because you're doing a backup. A backup's always happening. This is an interesting point and an important point. So in a traditional database, really since the beginning of time, the way um, they work is, is that um, you do these things called checkpoints, which basically make sure that all of the data has been flushed every five minutes. Because if you have a hot block, you want to ensure that if you come back up, that you don't have to apply a ton of redo log, right? And in particular, that's hard in MySQL because it's single-threaded. And so that might, uh, you know, if, even if you use the five-minute rule, um, where you say like it's typically five minutes between checkpoints, it might take a lot longer than that to run the replay in MySQL, right? In our case, the underlying storage replays the redo logs on demand as part of a disk read. And so that means that there's nothing different about running a crash recovery than reading a block and normal processing. You know, that is highly tested code just through everyday practice. So it's parallel, right? because it's happening across all your storage nodes. It's distributed for the same reason. It's asynchronous because you don't need the system to be up. You, you don't need the system to do the log replay after a crash. You can just start up and then you can, you know, as you access the blocks, they do the same thing that they've always done, which is, you know, apply the redo they need. Survivable caches. So we move the cache out of the database process. So you know, I mentioned that you know, we will shut down and restart uh, the process if we think it's bad or maybe your DBA does because he sees a, you know, a deadlock that can't be handled otherwise. And so since the cache is warm when you come back up, you can resume fully loaded operations a lot faster. And so the combination of instant crash recovery and survivable caches makes uh, recovery a lot, lot faster. Uh, the other aspect is, is that what about if I, you know, the machine's down? Well, we have also improved failover, you know, both in terms of failure detection time and then the recovery we said was a lot faster. And then we've, if you're using the MariaDB driver, 
it'll register the IP addresses of the, uh, the various nodes, so you don't have to wait for DNS propagation. So on average, a um, well, actually, let's just look at the failover times. So this is a registry for the last uh, you know, 35 weeks of how long failovers take across our fleets of tens of thousands of nodes of, you know, of, in, of clusters. So in this case, 30% uh, of the failovers happen in under five seconds. Uh, further, 40%, so now cumulative 70% are happening under 10 seconds. Under 20 seconds, uh, you're getting up to, you know, all of the 95%, so you, we added another 25% uh, there. And then other than a very, very small sliver of cases that we really uh, obsess about, you know, we were basically under 30. So that pretty much covers everything. And you can see that, you know, we've been obsessing about this for a long time because the numbers uh, on the... Uh, uh, upper ones have been, you know, they show a curve going upwards, right? That, you know, they're higher and then you see a curve going downwards on the others. So that's all, you know, ongoing work. That's part of what we have to do, focus on for you guys. And, you know, it's not things that are glitzy, but, you know, it's stuff that's super important. Now uh, let's look at new availability enhancements. So the fact of the matter is, is that availability is a lot more than hardware failures. Right? You patch your database. That, cons you know, that creates downtime. You modify your schema. That uh, either creates downtime or it go is going to actually cause a performance impact uh, as you're running. You do large-scale database reorganizations, right? So those you can't necessarily do in, online op in an online way. You have to actually create a copy of your database, do it, generate bin logs, replicate it over, and then maybe, you know, you know, lose your weekend, and then you come back and, uh, you know, you can flip it over. And then, you know, once in a blue moon, maybe it's happened to you, it certainly has happened to me, you drop the wrong table, or you run a delete statement that's missing the where clause or messed it up, and, the, you know, and then you get to meet your CEO. <laughs> and uh, you know, as he's standing there, well, you know, you wait for the, you know, point-in-time restore to come up, right? So... Databases have very wide blast radius, right? So that's all very sad. Uh, so let's uh, look at some of the things we've been, uh, we're introducing. Zero downtime patching. So what we do here is, you know, the traditional approach, the approach we were taking until just recently, is that we added the new database engine, we cut it over, you know, yes, it's great that the failover is fast or the, you know, the crash recovery is fast, but the user sessions terminate and then you have to come back up, right? Now what we do is, is that when we're patching, we put both pieces of software in place, we park the connections, and then as they drain out, you know, all the current activity, you know, once we get to, z you know, zero on that, we flip it over, and then we restart the activity. So it now feels like a bump in the wire in terms of, of, it, of performance rather than the, an outage, right? So. You, it just feels like, oh, for it seemed like a you know glitz in the matrix, you know, like it took three seconds longer than I expected. So that's pretty cool. Um, bunch of constraints right now. Uh, so right now we have to go to our current patching model when we can't park connections. And here are a bunch of areas where you can't park connections. Like if I've got an active query running, 
you know, I have to wait for it, or if it's going to take forever, I'm just going to kill it and come back up, right? Open transactions, same issue. And then, you know, there's a bunch of things. We're, this is an area of investment for us. You'll see it improve uh, in time. Here's something no one's asked me about but super important. So, you know, we talked about database reorganizations. And so how do you do that? Well, the neat way to do it would be to just clone your database, right? And if you, under, you know, if you own your storage system, what you can do is do a copy on write volume where you're just adding metadata and you just say, hey, I'm going to create a copy of my database, but I'm not going to do a deep copy of my data. And then as the data changes, I'm going to move it, you know, create two copies, right, just on a block-by-block -block basis. So that makes um, a lot of sense if you want to say, here's my production database. I've got a new app. I want to test it. Let me just create a copy. Or maybe I want to do a large-scale database reorganization. Or maybe, you know, I just want to say, like, hey, I can't, I, I need to take a look at the system at a particular point in time and really deeply understand what the heck happened there, right? But I don't want to affect the, that have, have that have effect on what's going on in my normal system. So let's dig in a little bit on how it works. So you do a um, database copy, a database clone. And so, you know, all the pages are the same. So I don't need to copy anything. I just need to you know, point the two systems at the same stuff. So that just takes a few seconds from a storage volume perspective. Unfortunately, it's, at this point, it takes a few minutes just because we have to get EC2 instances to register the database head node um, and read replicas. But you know, that'll come down over time. Anyway, a few minutes is sure beats a few hours to restore a large database. Then. As the pages change, let's say in this case, page two and page five changed in the source database, you know, there exists all over the storage system. You'll end up with multiple copies of uh, two, right? And you might have uh, a, pay, a new page added, and that'll just end up somewhere, right? And so all of that is, it's just straightforward copy on write, basically. You, that you're probably familiar with, that you know, it'll just create new copies as you go along on a page-by-page -page basis and just drift. Online DDL. So as, if you're familiar with MySQL, if you're doing a DDL operation, it does a full table copy and rebuilds all the indexes. It takes a long time. And um, further, the DML operations that you're running concurrently, because it's great that they've added online DDL, you know, basically get registered into temp space. And you need a lot, potentially a lot of temp space as that runs. And then the DDL operation actually impacts DML throughput, which is horrible. And then uh, there's a point at which you take a table lock to apply that log of changes, right? So, you know, it's better than where it was, but it's... Uh, not great. Um, so what we do now is um, we add an entry to the metadata table to indicate this change happened. And then each block is versioned to a particular version of the schema. And then when you do a modification of that block, we basically go and update it, upconvert it to that uh, new schema, the current schema. Okay, makes sense? It's basically like redo processing for metadata, right? 
just like I was apply, uh, generating a new version of the data page before I read it from a redo perspective, on a data perspective, I'm doing the same thing now on a metadata perspective. It's basically that same notion of moving things to be asynchronous, out of the latency path, et cetera. And right now we support one extremely important case, which is adding a nullable column at the end of the table. And again, like uh, I was saying about zero downtime patching, we, you know, it's a really important priority to us to add other sorts of add columns, to you know, be able to drop columns, reorder where something appears in a tree, uh, modify data types which are compatible, like you know, int to big int is a compatible conversion. You know, string to int, not so much, right? So here's some performance again. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, obviously the mechanism is entirely different. So you know, we're talking about uh, tenths of seconds versus hours, right? And uh, and that's actually a DDL operation happening that. Um, didn't have concurrent DML. If you have concurrent DML, you know, you can add a factor of 10 to that on the, you know, MySQL sites, I think. And I'm sure, you know, you've all done many of these, D, you know, DDL operations, um, and I'm sure you've experienced it for yourself, so you don't need any uh, proof points on the right-hand side of it, you know. It'll be interesting to see this left-hand side come out. Since we are writing data blocks out of place, you don't actually have to do a point-in-time restore necessarily, right? The data exists to go back to a previous point in time as long as we haven't garbage collected, right? So you can, again, move from something, a point-in-time restore being a data-centric operation to being a metadata-centric operation around moving pointers around about what is current. So this is an operation where you can say, hey, I want to keep, let's say, a day of uh, data not, without uh, garbage collecting it on my local disks inside my system. So don't garbage collect anything unless it's a day old or an hour old or whatever it is. And then you can say, rather than doing a restore to the current point in time, doing, you know, from a S3 snapshot and into a new volume, and just say, hey, let me just move back to this point. And so if you dropped uh, the wrong table, or if you have uh, deleted without a where clause, or you know, any of the things that actually end up happening, I mean, we all have users, right? Um, then you can uh, get uh, you know, something back up fast. That matters. So let's compare the two. So, the online operation changes the state of the current database, whereas the offline operation creates a new database. Um, it's available in seconds, even for a multi-terabyte database. Um, there's no additional storage cost, right, because the current database is restored to the previous point in time. Storage, you know, cost is probably not your biggest issue when you're going to this sort of thing, but, you know, it's nice. You can do it iteratively. So you can go and say, like, hey, let me, you know, someone said, oh, my God, I need to get back to 11.59. You know, this table got uh, dropped uh, right then, and then turned out it was actually 11.57, or it was, uh, you know, um, 12 o'clock or 12.03 or whatever it is. So you can just, you know, it's almost like a jog dial. Right? You can move it here, you can move it there. It's, since none of these operations are destructive, 
you know, you can move it around. Uh, we don't currently support cross-region. Uh, yeah. uh, so let's talk a little bit about how it works. So we, I talked about how we do snapshots and so forth. So inside the storage system, we generate data blocks, right? We generate uh, redo records as we go along. We, and then we basically need to figure out what is the logical um, log sequence number, right, LSN, that represents a consistent point in time for the database, and what does that reflect for any given segment, right? Because the log sequence number is going to expand, is uh, database-wide, so it's across all segments. So if I say I want to get back to log sequence number 10 billion, then, you know, in the various systems, there's only going to be one page that is at that number, and then all the others are going to be at different numbers that are going to be less than that, and that's what you want to get back to, right? So at rewind time, what we're basically doing is we're picking, hey, let me find the previous local snapshot and all of the redo changes since then. Okay, makes sense? And then what we need to do is figure out that all of the changes past that point need to be made invisible. So that as you start doing writes onto that system, that you skip over all of the things that happened in the, you know, the period that you didn't want to see, and you sort of jump over, jump all of that, you know, part of the chain to the stuff you do want to see. Right? Makes sense? And, but it's all non-destructive. So that way, if you want to go and rewind back forward or, you know, fast forward to a prior point in time because, oh my gosh, that was wrong again, uh, then you, you can do that. It's just about shifting what's invisible and what's visible. So that's one I'm really excited about. It's one of the ones that's going to appear in Q1, not uh, you know imminently. Yeah. This is the sort of stuff that you just have to be very, very sure works. Right? Um, so just some uh, small things that in terms of removing blockers. So the you know since we started the first the question everyone's asked me is like you know MySQL what about Postgres and so you know we've um, recent, we've just announced that there's a session happening concurrently with this one which doesn't really help any of you but uh, <laughs> there is a repeat of it that's happening at uh, 3:30 to 4:30 and so if you want to go to that uh, that will um, you know that may be helpful. Um, it shares the same storage system. All of the innovations that I talked about that we're adding to, you know, are primarily storage system innovations, right? Some of them have been to the MySQL. And, you know, those are obviously not applicable to uh, Postgres, but, uh, you know, the, all the storage system is because that's shared code. And they're doing, the, you know, they're following the same uh, playbook of saying, okay, here are all the changes that, you know, uh, we need to make to improve throughput, to deal with, uh, you know, the various things. and. You know, they're doing those on the Postgres code base. Another thing that uh, people have talked to me quite a bit about is, is that, gosh, you know, 29 cents of an hour, you think I've made of money? And so we did uh, recently introduce uh, T2 Medium, and so which takes it down to 8 cents, and uh, that helps a lot, particularly for dev test, right? You can expand that to a lot of users. And then the T2 Small is coming in Q1. Mostly we're just waiting for a few changes that, because we need more ENIs than the T2Small currently supports. Um, you know, a lot of uh, you in the audience probably need uh, certifications that, you know, we've had SOC and ISO for a while. 
Uh, we just have added PCI and HIPAA, so now you can use it for secure cases. You know, we're working our way through the, uh, you know, the list of certifications that are, you know, you might expect. Um, an interesting point on the slide is, is that we are adding integration with IAM as well. So for users, for uh, resource level permissions, et cetera. So you can control access in one place. That matters a lot if you're running an enterprise uh, you know, type of system. Auditing. So you know, I'm sure some of you have used the uh, server audit plugin from MariaDB. And uh, you know, what basically happens there is, is that as you perform operations, it creates an event string. It writes it to a file. And um, the problem there, I mean, which it's great. The only problem with it is, is that it really does slow down throughput. And uh, so, for example, with audit off versus audit on on MySQL 5.7 on a select-only workload, you're going, it reduces it roughly by a factor of three. On, uh, so we've added uh, native audit support where we are, you know, again, you can see it's really the same sorts of techniques applied in many different places. Uh, we remove the lock, we write these uh, event strings in parallel, and we write the uh, files in parallel. And, on the, you know, it does still have an impact, but on a sustained basis, we can, you know, can support about 500,000 uh, events per second, which is a fair number, right? Most people aren't running at that level on the per instance number. Um, we had a fair bit of excitement about adding Lambda events uh, and calling Lambda from uh, stored procedures or triggers. So that was pretty cool. I think that unblocks you a little bit that you don't have to, um, you know, stay inside, you know, older languages and older systems. You can sort of use the technologies you're used to. And this is all part of our moving more towards a service-oriented architecture world, right? It's no longer a world where everything sits in one database, right? You, as you change one database, you need to take action in another. And so, you know, this is just sort of addressing that reality inside the applications we build nowadays. We know we've added load from S3. The IAM thing I just talked about, you know, use IAM roles to manage database access, and that'll be important particularly for people who need to meet compliance and audits from, you know, regulators. Um, and then in Q1, we'll allow you to upload system metrics and audit logs to CloudWatch, which gives you a central console for, for doing that. So uh, looking at MySQL 5.6, we've actually not, not had any application compatibility issues reported since launch. That's been super important to us. And the ISV applications that run, uh, that work against um, MySQL, um, we have found run pretty much as is. So, you know, you don't have to change your application to move over. So that's encouraging, right? It, it certainly helps you with your custom apps as well. Um, so the negative thing that I'll fess up to here is, is that we're still working on 5.7. It's turned out to be harder than we expected. We've been changing a lot of code. They changed a lot of code in 5.7. It's really important uh, to us to get that done. In the interim, we've, we have been backporting bug fixes just to make sure that the ones that are most important you know, get dealt with. So just to sort of like put it all together, what's available now are 
the things on the left. I won't read the slide for you. you can, I'm sure you can read. Um, the things in December are the things that are locked and ready to go. We're in black days right now. We don't really want to do deployments uh, during reInvent or during Thanksgiving. And then, you know, so, you know, you should see um, the uh, 1.10 release go out, uh, you know, shortly after we get done uh, with the conference. And then uh, in Q, you know, what's in Q1 that's listed here? I mean, there's more in Q1 than it's listed here, but those are things that we've sort of finished development of and that they're now in test. And you'll see the things we're talking about there are the things that really require heavy test, right? They're things that impact durability. And, you know, there are a couple of items that are just larger. Um, so um, we're collecting feedback forms in the back. I'll take questions. I'll also note that uh, there are a pile of temporary tattoos as you exit the uh, building, uh, the room, and you can get those for the replay party later on. So, you know, you may enjoy that. And I'll take questions. I've got about 10 minutes left. <laughs>